Father, we've sung this morning about you as our great rock, and you don't move. You are great and strong. You are stronger than a rock. You're stronger than the greatest rock we've come across in life, and this image is your help to us to know what you are like. You don't move, and you can be depended upon, and we thank you that you give us more than a rock to to imagine you. You give us this image of a shepherd, and Father, you do lead us. And the Son, the Lord Jesus, leads us by the Spirit through the Word that He's given to us. And so now as we come and put ourselves under this Word, this unfading Word, this Word that is not like grass and not like flowers which fall and is not like us, this Word which is everlasting, this Word which is as strong as you are as a rock. Father, help us to stand upon what we hear this morning. Help us to take Jesus' lead this morning through it. In Christ's name we pray as we come to him. Amen. You may be seated. Please open with me in your copy of God's word to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis will be in chapter 24 in the first part of chapter 25 this morning. But we're going to start by reading in verse 62 and then we'll we'll work our way from the beginning of the chapter uh, through. So you'll open up to Genesis chapter 24 verse 62 titled this sermon, The Lord Has Led Me, and we'll see why. Genesis 24, verse 62. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahoreroi and was dwelling in the Negeb, and Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to us? And the servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Meden, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asurim and Letushim and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah and Epher and Hanok, Abida and Alda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite east of Mamre, in the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with, his, with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahiroi. 
And this is God's word. Weddings and funerals. We have here two weddings and one funeral. Weddings and funerals are the two kind of moments in which we can see the farthest in both directions of life. And oh, we can see a great distance from this moment in scripture in both directions. Wedding toasts and graveside eulogies don't get tangled up in minute details except when to illustrate great big points about the life of a person and perhaps what God has done in and through them. Isaac, when this passage comes to us, was still grieving the loss of his mother when he met Rebecca. It's a storybook kind of meeting, a match, as we'll see, truly made in heaven. And in this marriage, Isaac was comforted after his mother's death, we are told. Rebecca will be the new mother among God's people, the matriarch of the family and of the, the people of God, picking up where Sarah left off. The second paragraph we read skips across a great span of time with a great but brief genealogy. Abraham had at least six Children, seven grandchildren, and a few great-grandchildren are named here. God's promise of offspring, which he made to Abraham, pushes forward. God will have his people. Abraham never forgot God's purpose to bless humanity would come through him and specifically his son Isaac. And so the account closes beautifully. And God blessed Isaac, his son, We remember that the book of Genesis is structured, it is put together, its major pieces, its divisions fall along the movement of genealogies of specific people and specifically these particular patriarchs. And at each point, at each high point, at each turn, at each pivot of this book is a blessing from God to one of these individuals through whom the ultimate blessing The Lord Jesus will come in every spiritual blessing to us through him. And so we've said that God's purpose in this book, the message of this book is that the God who made us, that's where it begins, is determined to bless us. And that this is the story of our origins. It's it's a story of our genealogy, our family tree going back to Adam. and, And that God's purpose of blessing for humanity established in this book will come through one man and his family, Abraham. And it will come through specifically Isaac. And so there's a blessing here. God blessed Isaac, his son. Oh, the world is under a curse. You and I know it. We bear it to a degree. It surrounds us. Death is a curse. But God is out to bless. And he will do it through Abraham and his family. That blessing will come to us through Jesus one day. It has come to us as we gather this morning. We know it firsthand, but this is the story of our origins. And here in this statement that God blessed his son Isaac, we have an indication that God's plan and his purpose of blessing is pressing forward in the story. And Isaac settled with Rebekah in the land. And so God's promise of land pushes forward. God will have his people. He will bless a people and he will do so in a place that is marked by his blessing. And one day that will be the whole new creation that we look forward to, of which we are an outpost gathering 
this morning. Offspring, blessing, land. And so we're ready to push forward to the next stage in the story of our origins revealed to us in this great book of Genesis. But not quite yet. There is an important lesson yet to be learned before we advanced past the life of Abraham. There's an important lesson to be learned in 61 verses that lead up to this meeting of Rebekah and Isaac. A story that makes this chapter the longest in the book of Genesis. Not that chapter divisions were given to us by inspiration. And there are longer stories as stories go. But it's simply to highlight that this is a substantive section of the book. And it comes to us between Sarah's death and Abraham's death. And if we just read it, similar to last week's sermon on a a protracted cave negotiation for a burial plot that we came to recognize as God's sovereign provision of a foothold in the land. And we see it recognized even in the opening verses that we've read here that Abraham was buried in exactly that place. And we have almost the title deed reread for us. God got his people into the land and he is step-by-step advancing his purpose of salvation in the world. Well, this, this 61 verses, similarly, we might read and think, moving on. I mean, half of these 61 verses are basically a repeat. We're going to read them all. It's basically a repeat of the first half. And you just have to ask, he's either trying to fill up space because he doesn't like having extra papyrus or whatever they used in this particular instance, oral at first imagines. No, 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 no. All of it's deliberate. It's repeated twice for emphasis. Once as we walk through the story and once on the lips of a character. Repeated for emphasis. And so what is it God is trying to put down? That's what we want to pick up. Sarah is off the scene. Abraham is exiting fast. Is God off the scene? Israelites would hear about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, these towering names and figures. And one day they would lose Moses who wrote this to them. In fact, most who would read this would read this after the passing of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, and Moses. And there may not be a good leader in the land. How does God lead when these towering names are off the scene? This way, he leads behind the scenes in the lives of everyday servants to bring about the success, the perfect success in his perfect time. Of his plans. He leads behind the scenes in the lives of everyday servants to bring about the success, the perfect success of his plans. This is a sermon about God's sovereign leadership of his people. Sovereign leadership. There are multiple indications of this emphasis, two instances in which he speaks of how God appointed this and appointed that. A a pull through the story and looking for the success and the prospering of God's purposes. But this is not the sea parting and sun stopping sovereignty that we are used to from some stories and that we get and that spot the entire history of God's revelation. No, it's not the sea parting and sun stopping sovereignty. It is the everyday kind of sovereignty. It is not the sovereignty that tells us what to do when God audibly speaks to Moses from a bush. 
It is his sovereignty that leads behind the scenes through human activity to bring about the certain success, the certain prospering of his plans and purposes through humble servants, perhaps even like you and me. It may be easy to read the story that we're about to read and think of the minutia of our own life and the greatest concerns of our own life. And I would just say that God is in those things. But let us remember the agenda that he's advancing on the page here. And uh, we'll circle back around to that before we're, we're done. In this story about God's behind-the-scenes sovereignty, there are tensions in four movements. There's a rising and a falling of tension. How will this, if you will, this marriage made in heaven that we see Rebecca and Isaac meet, how will that come about? And oh, it's not so obvious at first. It doesn't just drop down from heaven like it appeared to, starting in verse 62, where we read, no, it's a long and winding story with rising and falling tension in four movements. And in this story filled with tension, we also find some relief to some of our own tensions. These may not be the tensions out front. The story was written to relieve, but they are relieved to some degree. The tension between God's will that is revealed on the page where he has written things to us And then God's, if you will, concealed will. He's bringing things about secretly without audibly telling us and writing to us down what it is precisely he's doing. But no, he is working by his spirit through his people. Uh, The tension between God's sovereign appointment of moments and decisions and people and our actual responsible acts. And the tension between waiting for God, waiting for him and working for him in obedience to his commands as he works out his plans through us. Oh, these tensions lay bare sitting in a single verse all across scripture. And to some extent, they will never fully resolve. We must simply embrace them as tensions. But we find them on the pages of scripture here. Well, let's get into it. How does God lead his people. We'll be watching at how God led a particular servant who remains nameless. Unlike Abraham, the great name, we might be able to identify a little more with this character, a nameless servant in God's plan through whom God brought about his purposes for Isaac of a marriage. And of course, through the marriage of Isaac, through whom he brings about heaven for all of us. How does God lead his people? Four movements. Let's watch the story of how Isaac finds a wife. And in, with each movement, we'll kind of front load these points with, um, with a teaching point. Some outlines and narrative are teasers, maybe questions. They don't give anything away. I'm just going to give things away as we go. Friends, God leads us as we plan. He leads us as we plan, verses 1 through 9. Abraham is getting up there in age. He's realizing that the promises of God for a great nation and the land will come after he's gone. He's got a foothold in the land, having bought the cave, and now it's time to advance the promise of offspring. He is, he is taking care of his affairs before he's, he's dead. And he's got him in the land, but his son isn't married. And all of God's purposes and promises hang on this. Verse 1, now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, 
Put your hand under my thigh and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning the matter. This is Abraham making some plans. He isn't going to go back to his former land to seek a wife from his people for his son, Abraham, and his son, and maybe some family are in the land, but, but that is not where his wife will come from. They are surrounded by Canaanites and foreign peoples, and as it is today, as it has always been, the people of God are to marry from within the people of God. Abraham's plan is forward-looking. It's a succession plan. Friends, job number one for all Christians in their later years, for each of you when you reach your later years, for each of you who are in your later years, job number one is a succession plan. It may be easy to look back on life and linger there long as there may not be much left ahead of you. We can all do the math. We don't get as many years as Abraham did. And yet we should look forward. And yet there is much to look forward to. And as we look forward, we take care of our affairs. And the most important affair we take care of is seeing that the faith is handed down seeing that the gospel is handed down, seeing that it is secure. Twilight years don't need to be dim. They can be dim physically, even mentally over time, but they should be a multiplying brightness. And the prayers of the saints and the prayers for the church and the encouragement of the young in the faith and the cheering on of young parents with kids as they disciple them. Oh, there's so much to be done, even with a day left. So let's be busy about it until the very end. Abraham's plan is forward thinking. It's a succession plan. He trusts in the sovereignty of God. God made a promise to him that's unilateral. He'll fulfill it. Abraham is busy scheming in the best sense. Abraham's plan is also theological. He, he's imagining his life and he's imagining his family and future in light of God's plan. This is what we're handing down. Abraham planned for the advance of God's plan. Remember God's original promises to Abraham. Land, offspring, and blessing. These promises filled Abraham's imagination. They're all here. They're all here. Verse 1, And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Verse 7, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house, he says, and from the land of my kindred, And who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He is so sure he considers it done. He owns a cave and a field and fully expects his people to own the rest. 
But not unless Isaac gets married and has a child and he'll see about bringing this about before he closes his own days. And so he makes plan to advance God's plan. This is a theological vision for his family's future. Twice he speaks about the God of heaven and earth. God is big in his imagination in his final days. Big. Abraham's plan is deliberate and involves human strategy. It involves human strategy. He needs to find Isaac a wife, and he doesn't expect that to happen without the movement of people. But more than needing a person to help, he goes for a very specific kind of person. He won't just take anyone for this job. Who can trust this job with just anybody? He calls for his servant, uh, who's called the oldest of his household, the one who has charge of everything, who we should say is the hardest to lose, especially in his own old age when he can't take over the responsibilities of his servant. Perhaps he had others, we're not told. But we are told he sends his best because this is the most important of jobs. He calls for his servant and he gives the man a task. And we're going to want to watch this man because this is a special man. This is his best. This is, whom, this is the man whom Abraham groomed in the course of his, his life. This match made in heaven will also be a match made on earth as human persons move about to bring about God's plans in confident obedience to his commands and with the confidence that God will finish what he started. Uh, Abraham's plans are deliberate. They're also submitted. They're submitted to God's word. There are two certainties Abraham has in mind. There's one thing that God's going to do, and it's he's going to give his offspring the land. He's going to give his offspring the land. And there's one thing that Isaac must not do, and that is he must not take a wife from Canaan. He can't do it. And at the same time, Isaac must not leave the land. He's not leaving the land. He's staying here. We're not risking anything. No going back, in other words. You go get him a wife. There is only going forward, and the future for Abraham's people is only forward. It's in the land. A good perspective, isn't it, for all of us at each moment of our lives? There is only forward in God's plan. There is only forward for this church. There is only what God will do next for us. He wants God's blessing, and so he submits his plans to God's word, certain of what God promised and certain of what he has restricted, what he has commanded, and he works within those boundaries. He wants God's blessing. God's people have always been about this kind of mixture of certainty and ambiguity. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. He is right here. He is in, around, behind, underneath, and through all of our plans as we give ourselves to him, as we trust in him, as we lean on him and not our own understanding. Abraham's plan is also wild. We're talking 400 miles a 400-mile journey to go fetch a wife for a man apparently the woman wouldn't be able to see. I mean, he's not going to have, you know, a Facebook profile. Well, here he is. <laughs> um, does, it, does it look like a match to you? Um, here's a little bit about him. Um, you go spend some time and then come back and we'll talk. Now, 400 miles, and that's 400 miles between the man and the woman. 
and this servant is supposed to bring her back. No wonder he's asking, well, like, what if she doesn't come, Abraham? I mean, you're kind of old. I mean, that's not exactly how it works these days. <laughs> uh, maybe it is. You know, arrangements like that were, weren't unusual if they were even standard fare at the time. The point is, um, there's going to have to be some consent here. She's going to have to want to come. And I'm not going to trap her and then drag her 400 miles. What if she doesn't come? Abraham's plan is just a little wild. Abraham's plan is solemn. He makes an oath with the servant. It's kind of a strange oath that's made where he puts his hand, may indicate some connection to the nature of the whole project of ensuring his progeny, but it's a solemn oath. Abraham's plan is also tentative. He leaves it, he leaves God's, he leaves room, excuse me, for God's redirection, I think. I mean, he might just be saying, uh, okay, well, if she doesn't follow you, you're out of the oath. Uh, but of course, she's going to follow you. <laughs> or he might be open to the idea that without audible direction from God on this specific strategy, that God may get this done some other way. Well, all right, well, if she doesn't come, because she's going to have to come if it's God's work, if he's in it. If she doesn't come, then you're free. Uh, he leaves room for God's redirection. At least that's how the servant would receive it. He, he has an out in case it doesn't work. Yet they're both certain of what God will do. He wants the servant to go. The servant asks this good question. God didn't exactly audibly say this. And yet Abraham is at least pretty sure. Again, he rehearses what he can't do, namely take Isaac back. He reasons that the Lord will work through his plans, but humbly allows the possibility, I think, that the Lord may want to do it some other way. So God leads as we plan. And here's a pretty good plan. God also leads as we pray. He leads as we pray. Verses 10 through 28. We'll work through these together. This section here is bookended with these beautiful prayers. Beautiful prayers. Prayer envelopes the effort of this servant in fulfilling his vow, his oath to Abraham, his master. Now we get to see this servant in action and we're going to learn from him. The kind of man who's grown up under Abraham's leadership, the paradigmatic man for the next generation. Not all of us are Abraham, Isaac and Jacob's and Moses's, right? We're nameless servants. And so we get to watch this one. We only get a sentence for the whole 400 mile journey. Poor guy. I would have wanted a paragraph on my 400 mile journey. The servant took, verse 10, 10 of his master's camels and he departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. Look with me now at the first thing he does once he gets to the city. So he's already there. It's all, 400 miles, he's there. Verse 11, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening at the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, here's his prayer. Oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by a spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. 
By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. He has prayed. He's prayed to the God of the covenant. Oh, Lord God of my master, Abraham. And so we pray when we pray to the God of God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, the God who is over this history and the God who has come to us in, in covenant. He, pr- he prays for the advance of God's salvation in his own day and in his own life. Please grant me success today. This theme of success will be on repeat. He wants to finish this mission. He is praying, God, please help me to finish this with success. Bring about your plans through this this instance, this particular effort. Isn't that a great way to pray? God, bring about the success of your purposes through this effort. Through this effort to send Anna with the farmers. Through, this, through these prayers of, of our church on Sunday evenings as we so often pray for our missionaries. Bring about the success of our plans to reach our neighbors as we ask and as we seek, and as we invite, and as we befriend. Please grant me success today. Just grab that out and stick that on the wall. It's a great prayer. He prays an appeal to God's faithfulness. Verse 12, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Hesed love, steadfast, beautiful, loyal love. He prays with specificity that God would reveal the right girl to him. Not that he would perform a miracle. This is interesting. Not that he would perform some miracle. Uh, God, the father of Abraham, put a halo over the girl that comes out that I'm to to seek. Uh, It's interesting. This, This criteria he works through is actually a pretty reasonable criteria. He doesn't pray for a miracle, I suppose he could, or riding in the sky, but that God would work through the normal, reasonable means of identifying a suitable mate, and he's thought it through. Isaac will need a partner who's a hard worker, who's hospitable, and who's generous. This is the servant's litmus test. He's his pickup line for his master's son. And its pickup line is actually meant to lead to some things that will reveal her character. What happens next? He's prayed a prayer. He's waiting. The daughters will be out. The daughters are the men of the city. And perhaps one will be here. I remember when I walked into my first class at Moody Bible Institute in 1999 and, you know, had plenty of crushes on girls my whole life um, and then walked into the class and saw this one really, really curly-haired girl over there and thought, I'm in college now. I could meet my wife. Maybe she'll be my wife. <laughs> we hardly talked for another year. That was Christy. And I actually remember having the thought, maybe God was in it. Um, even as I apply this passage to some of these instances in my own life, I think it's not so much about God bringing me a spouse, although he does that so graciously when he does it, but about God bringing me a partner for ministry of the gospel for the rest of life, which is a part of God advancing his plan in the world. And so, yes, maybe he put the thought in my head, but he certainly put us in that room together and we can say as much. What happens next? He's looking, he's watching, 
Verse 15, before he'd finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abram's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and she filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And he said, she said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw waters for your cam- water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran, a- ran again to the well to draw water. And she knew for all his, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. He gazed at her in silence. Just a little creepy, but uh, I mean, don't do that. Or at least don't be one that could be described as gazing at her in silence, gentlemen. Um, But the Lord puts us in places, does he not? I can't help but think of my own marriage story. The Lord put me at a desk where I worked on certain evenings of the week and there that gal would come and sit across the student center and she would just sit and read systematic theology. And at some point I'd wandered over and just said hi because we discussed things before and we're, we're a kind of an acquaintance and somewhere along the line I learned she reads her systematic theology assignments twice. That's awesome. <laughs> so I was gazing upon her and, and learning. Well, he's, he's gazing, he's watching, he's come to a critical place. He's where all the ladies are. And he's trying to learn whether the Lord has prospered his journey or not. What does he see as he looks to learn? Well, he notices that she's attractive. Uh, that's not everything, friends, but it's not a bad thing. It seems to be the first indication of divine intervention, by the way. It's not incidental. Um, does that mean that every lady is attractive to the same extent? No, it doesn't mean that, but it means that God created beauty and he's, he's made men very unattractive for a reason. We're workhorses and filled with muscles and can lift things and throw trees and such. And he's made women softer and different. He has designed these things. And here we see a commendation of the beauty of femininity. This deserves at least a small comment along the way. This is certainly not the point of the passage. It seems to me that we easily err in one of a few ways on this topic. On the one hand, we're tempted to make attractiveness everything are we not tempted to make attractiveness everything? Is that not so sinister and terrible a threat and a temptation in our, our own day? Men, we may make attractiveness everything in our, our search for a maid. And women, you may be tempted to think attractiveness is everything from your side. And of course, this goes both ways, men to women, women to men. But remember what Proverbs 31 says, that charm is deceitful and beauty is vain even though she was attractive. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Women fear the Lord. Be attractive from the inside out, but don't be afraid of being attractive either. And the Proverbs have plenty of warning about the deceitfulness of our senses. The smells and sights of a woman can be wielded for such trouble. Be careful. On the other hand, and often in reaction to those who make it everything, and there's a world around us making it everything, we're tempted to say it isn't 
anything at all, or maybe attractiveness is a bad thing. But notice here that it's no indication here that attractiveness was a problem. We don't read, and Rebecca came out to the well in a denim tube. She had no shape or form. Her face was covered. No, she's attractive, and that's a good thing. The young woman was very attractive in appearance. Apparently, the servant could recognize that, and Moses' readers knew what he went, and God was not dishonored. A little, little, not enough, theology of attractiveness. I hope that it serves you. But notice, it's just the first thing he noticed, and that's so important. It's just the first thing he noticed. He wasn't sure yet. She hadn't spoken yet. He had more to learn. Abraham didn't say, go find an attractive wife for my son. A second thing, she was also available. It seems that he knew this, but perhaps he found it out a little later in the encounter, as we'll see. In any case, we're told she was not married. She was a daughter of the city, not a wife from the city. She's also a hard worker. She's there with a jug on her shoulder doing work for the family. She's also generous. She offers him something to drink. Her every movement is detailed. We get decades of genealogy uh, in just a few uh, verses here by the end of the chapter or beginning of chapter 25. And here we get every movement that she makes. He's watching every movement. She's generous. She gets him something to drink and immediately she goes to get his camels something to drink and doesn't stop until they're done. What about hospitality? Verse 22. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. Oh, she is hospitable. Plenty ready for guests without any need for heads up. A good standard, isn't it? If, if, you, if you're only willing to have guests with the house at a certain cleanliness level and you don't have to have it at a certain cleanliness level, then maybe keep it at about 80% if you can so that if you have the opportunity to extend hospitality on short notice, you're not so far from it, or just lower your standards, and that's fine too. Um, <laughs> Christy and I have kind of done this over life, and then we've actually done this. <laughs> when we were first married, she was cleaning the baseboards all around. You know, we had someone over for lunch after church. I was like, "What's? I don't even I don't even know this exists." Um, and uh, in any case, um, yeah. So it's marriage is good. <laughs> no, this is in my notes. She's hospitable. I thank God for a hospitable wife. And she's eligible. She's available, but she's also eligible, and that's key. Verse 23, and she said, please tell me whose daughter you are. He's got to know this. He's not leaving the land of Canaan to go get an attractive, hospitable wife for Isaac from another people. He's got to be from his people, God's people. Some may be available and not eligible, and you'll you'll know how that applies to you. You'll know how that applies to you, and that may, mean, that may mean difficulty for you. Um, we'll get to patience. What is the servant's next step? Well, she's attractive, available, generous, hospitable, and eligible. What does he do? Take her arm and march 400 miles back to Isaac. The first thing he does is pray. He's like, wow, I think we're here. 
I think we're here. I think this is it. He prays. Verse 26, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord. First words, blessing to the Lord. The God of my father, master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me. The Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. And the young woman, she ran and told her mother's household about these things. A prayer begins with God. He bows his head to the Lord. He blesses the Lord. A great way to begin your prayers. You're praying to God. Talk to him about him. His prayer rehearses how God has led him personally. In this matter of saying, the Lord has led me, it seems we go wrong in a few ways and it's worth a few comments as well. We're certain of everything God is doing. That's maybe one way we go wrong in this matter of God leading us. We kind of see him in everything and we attach his name to our every move. Abuses of this have repelled me in years past against even speaking about him in certain seasons because I was so annoyed with how he was behind every stoplight. He is, but it's nuanced. I remember folks who always talked about what God was telling them, but never talked about what he told them in the word. And I was stirred to look at the word, but here's a man speaking of how the Lord has led him. And he's not pulling it out of thin air. He's been praying, he's been working and laboring. He knows God's purposes. And maybe some folks are tempted to speak about everything except the things it seems God is actually concerned with in the Bible. So we have to be careful in how we speak about how God is leading. But we should speak about how God is leading. Because he is. We either see him in everything or we see him in nothing. We don't want to be functional deists. I can remember... Uh, just a week ago, I was getting groceries, and I don't usually do that. Christy is pregnant with child, and so I'm getting groceries. And um, if you were to follow my movements around Bilo, it did not seem that the Lord was leading me around that store. <laughs> Unless he was cruel. Oh, I was praying, God, help me get out of here with the food. Um, I had to pick up one of those, one, two, a couple strategies I ran in my head. Uh, one, I could go item by item and walk the whole store. Um, I could read, which isn't a whole lot of fun, and kind of look at the aisles and then march this way up and down the store. Or I could like read the list 10 times and then start working across the store like this and then catching things that I remembered I needed. That's what I did. And then I ended up darting around. And I could tell that there were some executives in, in the store on that day and, uh, because there was a super friendly clerk. How may I help you? You look like you need help. I'm like, oh, sure. And I noticed a couple executives standing there watching the, 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 the person help me out. So it was a good day and maybe the Lord was in it. We're tempted to make sort of every turn of life into some big thing God is doing. Friends, he's in the details. He cares about you. He cares about the car you're buying. He cares about the house you have to buy. But let's not forget that we actually don't get, we don't get coverage of those kinds of things in scripture apart from God's big purposes that he's advancing in our lives. He is leading. He is leading us to be conformed to the image of his son. And so sometimes he denies us a spouse. Maybe if that's his purpose, he is leading us and his church to bring the gospel to the nations. And so sometimes he also denies a spouse so that one might serve more beautifully and fully in that capacity for his great purposes. He's in everything. We just have to perceive his leading in the context of his whole beautiful 
story, but be encouraged that this man takes on his lips in prayer, Lord, you led me. And know yourself if you need to say that a little less and with a little more caution and know yourself if you need to say that at all and say that more. And maybe I'd be on that side of things. This servant's way has been instructive for us, has it not, as it's meant to be. He believes the Lord leads him. And he believes the Lord is leading him in the normal course of things in life. He's not looking for the miracle, as I've said. He is not fretting for some kind of magical insight. He's not freaking out because he's waiting for some type of impression. He's watching her. He's observing her. He is pondering whether the Lord has made his journey successful. And he's praying. And having observed her and even thanked God for leading him to this point, does he now take her with him? Nope, he has to go meet the dad. Another human custom. Verse 29, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, he heard the words of Rebecca, his sister. Thus, the man spoke to me. He went to the man and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And he said, speak on then. He won't even indulge himself of hospitality until he's had appeal to her father's house and family and this brother. And the second third of this chapter is given to his act of persuasion here. And so third, God leads us as we persist. It is bookended by these kinds of interrupted negotiation. Can we get this done now kind of things? What will he do to get her back home? to say goodbye to her responsibilities and families and friends and all of the things that are hers that she knows. What transpires in these next several paragraphs is a basic retelling of the story. And why retell it? It's not because we don't know what just happened. It's so we don't miss what just happened. And so that having watched the servant, we hear it from his own lips. Here's how a man speaks about God's leading, even in qualified terms as he's appealing for permission. Verse 34, so he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old and to him he has given all he has. My master made me swear saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel before you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free of my oath. I came to the spring and said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, if now you're prospering the way I should go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink. 
And who will say to me, drink, and I will draw from your camel also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebecca came out with her water jar on her shoulder. She went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camel's drink also. So I drank and she gave the camel's drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and bracelets on her arms. And then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Abe Raham has rehearsed the Lord's leading. God's blessing of Abraham, Isaac's inheritance, the oath to take a wife from the Canaanites, the Lord's angel and all the rest. He has rehearsed it. He hasn't forgotten a detail. He's studying his own life as he's on this journey. He's leading them to see God's hand in this. And what will they say? Verse 50, then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. And so here he has rehearsed God's sovereignty in the course of his journey and the family affirms the Lord's leading. They won't even evaluate it further. That's how I take this comment about not speaking good or bad. Like, we're fine, we're rolling with this. This seems right. Go. Now, the servant is ready to depart with her. Verse 52 When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. There he goes again praying. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and her mother costly ornaments. Uh, He and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. But there's a twist. When they arose in the morning, uh uh-oh, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and mother said, "Um, let the young woman remain for us a while, at least 10 days, and then she may go. Ooh, and so he remembers his ABCs from sales training always be closing. Um, Overnight, this is, it's got him thinking. We want some more time with our daughter. He can't afford this. But he said to them, do not delay me. Here's that other point of urgency. He will finish the job he was sent to do. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, well, let us call the young woman and ask her. He's called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? Will you go? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And so Rebecca takes what sure appears to be the Lord's leading. Perhaps what she and her family have prayed for for years. She made her way on a normal day down to the well to get water for her family. Maybe it was a boring day. It didn't end that way. And so they're off, but not without a blessing and a poem, verse 60. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, speaking better than they knew, Oh, sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. 
May he be a victorious king. And oh, her offspring will be. Then Rebekah and her young woman arose and they rode on the camels and followed the man 400 miles. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went on his way. The Lord leads as we plan. He leads as we pray. He leads as we persist to complete the job he has given us. And he leads as we patiently wait. For all this activity and even urgency, let's not forget how long it took to get exactly here, friends. Abraham was approaching his 175th birthday, a famous milestone none of y'all will see. Isaac was 40 years old at this point. Abraham and Sarah waited a good long time for Isaac. We get countdowns and ages and all this stuff to emphasize the amount of time God is dragging this out to last minute kind of situations. They have waited and they've waited together, the three of them, for a spouse. They're in the land. It's not exactly surrounded by people from their kindred, but they're gonna get this done. And don't forget that long journey. Patience remembers what true success is. For the servant, this wasn't about his own marriage as the servant. If we're identifying with him, it's about Isaac's marriage and about God's faithfulness to his covenant promises, Abraham. Patience remembers the steadfast love of the Lord that comes to all of us through his servant, Abraham and Abraham's great son, the Lord Jesus. We can persist in waiting because God persists in his steadfast love and his faithfulness stirs our own. The servant even asks for them to give steadfast love to Abraham. And so we give steadfast love to the Lord. Patience is satisfied to play even a small part in God's very, very great plan. And friends, whatever heritage will do for the gospel to the ends of the earth and whatever God will do in your life and in the lives of your neighbors to bring the good news of Jesus and salvation to them, it's a small part in his very good plan. And he's the one bringing it about through you. And be patient as sometimes he is patient. Patience prays and prays and prays and it prays different kinds of prayers. It asks God for open doors. It gives him thanks when he opens doors. It prays for help to speak the right word. It prays for God to move. And God sometimes shakes the earth as he did early in the book of Acts when the church prayed. Patience looks for the amazing things God is doing all around us. More incredible, friends, than stopping the sun and more incredible than splitting the sea is his raising a person from the dead, giving new life to his person. Gathering this church each Lord's day is more amazing than the most incredible things that we saw on the pages of our Old Testament scriptures. And our kind of patience that waits on the Lord to work sees that for what it is. And patience takes comfort in the truth that God is leading even when he isn't apparently speaking. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this last minute story, this story here at the very, very end of Abraham's life where where we find ourselves in the life, in the, the work and the sweat of this servant who isn't named and yet who was faithful to you and who persisted in his obedience to Abraham. And Father, we give you thanks for the way that you have led men and women to gather in this city and to establish this church and then to move us over here. 
and each effort and each milestone of this church's life, you have been in it, working through the prayers of the saints and the unity of our elders that you have appointed by your Holy Spirit. We give you thanks for leading our church. And Father, we pray to you, the God of heaven and earth, and we plead with you to do more. We plead with you to bring salvation to our neighbors. We plead with you to bring salvation to the children we're raising in this place. We plead with you, maybe in our own day, that we would see and be a part of and persist in seeing the gospel brought to a people that has not heard it in partnership with men and women who are at the edge of the earth, even our own sons and daughters whom we send out, would you bring about the next step of your purposes in this day, our day, the success of your mission in our day through our church that we might see it and give you praise. In Christ's name we pray, amen.